the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Good evening, and welcome to The Business of Giving. I'm Denver Frederick, and we have two very interesting women with us tonight. My first guest is Dr. Anne-Marie Slaughter, the president and CEO of New America, a think tank that creatively addresses issues brought about by rapid technological and social change. She may be best known, however, for authoring the most read article in the history of Atlantic Magazine titled, Why Women Still Can't Have It All. She wrote that when she decided to leave her dream job to be home with her adolescent son. I got, well, you're not a player. You know, they, I could see people reevaluating me. And that started me thinking about how it was that, that as a, a woman who wanted a gender equality, we had privileged our father's work, the work that brings in income, yes. and downgraded our mother's work, the work of, of investing in others, right? I wouldn't be here but for my mother's work. And then I will be joined by Dr. Elizabeth Hausler, the founder and CEO of Build Change. They have a simple yet wonderful mission. Build Change's mission is to save lives in earthquakes and windstorms by working with people in emerging nations to build houses and schools that don't collapse in them. But first, the Business of Giving News Digest for Sunday, October 6. Telling people what product their trash will turn into makes people more likely to take the time to recycle it. A new study finds that while 95% of people in the U.S. want to make sustainable purchases, most of them don't know what to look for to determine if something is, in fact, sustainable. Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation co-chair Melinda Gates has announced a 10-year, $1 billion commitment to promote gender equality in the United States. And in a related story, a study finds that charities dedicated to women and girls receive just 1.6% of all donations. Elon Musk makes 40,668 times more than a median Tesla employee. Musk earned $2.28 billion in 2018, compared to the media Tesla worker salary of $56,000. Former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg is committed $160 million to combat vaping. Bloomberg has long been an advocate for anti-smoking campaigns. A new study finds that living close to the coast may have long-lasting benefits and supports better overall mental health. And finally, 35% of U.S. workforce is now freelancing. 57 million people, which is 10 million more than it was just five years ago. And that is a Business of Giving News Digest for this Sunday evening. I'll be back with Anne-Marie Slaughter of New America right after this. I just finished months of chemo, but I don't want to talk about months. I want to talk about years. Treatments have gotten better, so I'm hoping for good years ahead. That's thanks to research funded by the American Cancer Society. The same folks giving me free rides to treatments, insurance advice, and a place to stay during chemo. I need that stuff like you don't know. And now that you do, please give at cancer.org. Technology can change lives, but underserved communities around the world have yet to experience all the benefits technology offers. Benetech is a nonprofit whose mission is to empower communities in need by creating scalable technology solutions. Their work has transformed how half a million people with disabilities access information, made it easier and safer for human rights defenders to document violations, and equipped environmental conservationists to protect ecosystems. Learn more by visiting Benetech.org. A simple smile can say so much. It can say thank you, please, or even I love you. Sometimes a smile can say more than words could ever express. But what if you couldn't smile? Unfortunately, that's the sad reality for so many children today. Without the help of life-saving surgery, helpless children find themselves cast aside and all alone. But it doesn't have to be this way. To learn how you can help Smile Train, the world's largest cleft charity, change the world one smile at a time, go to smiletrain.org. If you're interested in reading transcripts of guests' interviews from the business of giving, you can find them at denverfrederick.wordpress.com. And now back to the show on AM 970, The Answer. My next guest has worn many, many hats, all with remarkable skill, 
and has thought deeply about how women and men need to integrate their professional lives with that of their family life. She has taught at Harvard, the University of Chicago, and Princeton, held a key post in the State Department working for Secretary Clinton, and currently is the CEO of New America. But she's perhaps best known by the general public for an article she wrote in The Atlantic titled Why Women Still Can't Have It All, which was the most read article in the history of the magazine. She is Dr. Anne-Marie Slaughter. Good evening, Anne-Marie, and welcome to The Business of Giving. What a pleasure to be here. You know, there's so many places we could begin, but let's start with your current position as the CEO of New America, which is celebrating its 20th anniversary. (laughs) Tell us about the organization and its mission, which was updated in 2017. It was. Well, New America is a think tank. We also think of it as an action tank because we're blending thought and action. And our mission is very grand. Our mission is renewing America by holding the country to its highest ideals in an age of rapid technological and social change. And all three of those things are important. We really believe that new America is growing out of old America, that you cannot move forward by destroying the past. You've got to bring at least part of the past with you. We believe in renewing our commitment to our highest ideals, like a couple would renew their vows. We need to do that as a country on a regular basis. And critically, we focus on the kinds of challenges and opportunities that rapid technological change is bringing, which we see every day, but not just technological change, social change. America is changing dramatically, demographically and socially. So that's this broad, broad mission. And then within that, we focus on a number of more specific areas. But it is it is really a, an organization – that I think of as an engine of renewal Mm -hmm. at a time when the United States really needs new ideas, new solutions, uh, and a way of of moving forward, as I said, that brings as many people as possible along. Yeah, that's so interesting because, you know, so many think tanks are pretty staid (laughs) and are pretty traditional. And I was even impressed that you did update your mission statement in 2017, (laughs) which means you're renewing yourself at the same time. Yes, we are. We are, absolutely. Well, I think listeners will get a better idea of exactly what you do by talking about a few of the initiatives that you and your team are in. One of them is embracing true pluralism in this country through ranked choice voting. Tell us what that is and its possible benefits. Yes. Honestly, if you ask me what is the one thing you would do to change this country, if you had only one thing, I would change our electoral system from voting for one candidate to ranking a couple of candidates. That's what ranked choice voting is. So if you, in the presidential election, you had three or four candidates, you could say the Democrats first, an independent second, and the Republican is third. Maine already does this across the state, and 15 cities do this. Hmm. It's not It's not rocket science, right. and it does not change, does not require a constitutional amendment. But here's what's so important about it. In the first place, it makes people move to the center, not the extremes, because I want to be your first choice candidate, but I want to be somebody else's second choice Mm. candidate. And that means I can't just play to my base. I got to make sure that the people who don't want me first might want me second, because the way it works is it's whoever gets the most first choice, the most second choice, the most third choice votes. The other thing is it would allow us to become a multi-party democracy. I don't believe that America can survive this century with two parties that are completely polarized. And honestly, if you look right now in our politics, there are probably a number of Republicans who don't like President Trump. There are probably a number of Democrats who think that the left of the Democratic Party is too far left. Mm -hmm. But they're not going to move to the other party. That's too far. If there were a more centrist party, they probably would. And there's nothing to stop us from having three or four parties. That would give us a wider range of choice. It would give much more fluidity. If I wanted to start a party, I could start a party. I mean, you don't want to be a country with 10 parties. Yeah, yeah. But it, it, is, it is a way of giving people more choice. And I would just say 100 years ago – we changed our political system from having senators selected by the, the upper house of state legislatures to direct elections. Mm-hmm. That took a constitutional amendment. This is much easier and every state can do it on its own. Yeah. So it's multi-party the, democracy. Ah, you sold me <laughs> in about a minute and a half. You know, um, it just gets us away from something that I never heard growing up. 
and that was energize your base. Yes. And it's get that vote out. And it's almost like they've given up on the middle. Exactly. Almost, not entirely, but the way you win these elections is energize their base your base, and that is by throwing them more and more red meat. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's exactly. interesting. Iowa has that, I believe, in their caucus, doesn't it, in terms of... They, ha- they do have some ranked choice voting, absolutely. And as I said, Maine has adopted it for all its elections. That's incredible. Um, higher education's a biggie for yes. New America, and you've championed, championed ending the so-called college blackout and making higher education outcomes more transparent. Now, what's the issue here? Well, we, we want to reinvent higher education, and I say that as somebody who's spent a lot of my life in higher education. Yes, uh, one of the things we really want is for students to be able to really see college outcomes, right? People can see the ranking of a university. Uh, they can see the price, although even costs are not as transparent as mm-hmm. they should be. What they can't see is how many people graduated, how many of those people got a job, right? Particularly for kids who are taking on a lot of college debt. A lot of them take on that debt and then don't graduate, which means they're in the worst of all worlds. They ought to be able to choose based on what's the best education that is not just going to give me a, a critical mental training, but help launch me on a career. And colleges fight this because they say, oh, we're not training grounds. But Look, it, you know, it's not fair to ask people to pay all that money without seeing where graduates end up. And frankly, it would incentivize colleges to pay more attention to where their students go afterwards. What kind of movement are we seeing in that? Oh, not enough. Yeah. I mean, the, the, here universities fight very hard. They, they do have a point that, that you want to protect the privacy of individual students. But we're talking about aggregate data. That's right. Right? That's right. I mean, there, there is no reason you can't do this. Uh, but you can imagine uh, that's, that's a, a, a ground on which many colleges and universities don't want to be measured. I think where we'll see more progress is like community colleges, hmm. particularly if community colleges can offer four-year degrees, then you'd be able to say, hey, wait a minute, if I, if I stay here and I do follow this course of study, these graduates got these jobs, we need to, to reconnect the educational system and the workforce. Community colleges are so underappreciated. Absolutely. And so important. They, <laughs> they are, are really essential. <laughs> yeah. They really are essential. And there are community hubs, not just for more and more students and connecting to companies who need a workforce, but actually, I think, for more people who can teach. Yeah. There are an awful lot of people who would love to be teaching mm-hmm. but can't break into the traditional academic sector. Mm-hmm. To give a, an idea of the breadth of what you do, you have also been observing important trends in America's covert drone program. And now that's a matter most citizens know very, very little about. What have you discovered? <laughs> so we track all U.S. drone strikes, and we have a number of ways of finding out about them. They're ultimately uh, re- openly reported uh, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in Libya, in, in Somalia, in parts of Western Africa. And we simply keep a database. Mm-hmm. We, are, we're, we just say this, these are the facts. It's been very important. We've tracked civilian casualties, as again, from open sources. The result of that work was that we found the civilian casualties were considerably less than some advocacy groups were reporting, but considerably more than the Pentagon was acknowledging or the CIA was <laughs> mm-hmm. acknowledging. Uh, and that actually had made some policy change under the Obama administration. But mostly, this is the future of conflict. It is drones and droids and and hackers. Yeah, and we're seeing it more and more and more. Absolutely. And we have to let a people know what's happening. It seems like a cheap and easy way to wage conflict. But imagine if we had drones circling overhead in New York City and suddenly a car just gets taken out. Mm-hmm. Right? It can create long-lasting hatred and resentment uh, of our country. And again... I understand their costs and benefits, but the public needs to know. So that's the kind of work we do that is more journalistic but highly rigorous uh, and collects the data and makes it available to everybody. You know, sometimes our regulations are behind our technology. (laughs) Yes. And uh, I was reading a sports magazine the other day, and they don't think they're going to be outdoor sporting events in 10 years because it's just a matter of time before some drone attack is going to occur. And you might get dome stadiums and things of that sort. 
and they're really concerned about this. And you read this and you say, oh, that's a little far-fetched. And then you say, you know, it's not that far-fetched. It's that not. That happens once. Exactly. And people are going to sit home in their living room and watch the game on Ex- TV. Well, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. anyone can operate a drone. Anyone can. <laughs> you recently co-authored a really interesting article which appeared in the Stanford Social Innovation Review titled The New Practice of Public Problem Solving. Speak to some of the limitations of the way public problem solving has traditionally been done. <laughs> So uh, this is a subject about which I am am really passionate because I was the dean of the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs at Mm -hmm. Princeton, and I'm a lifelong foreign policy person. So I have always believed that the way you solved a public problem was you you researched a question, you figured out an answer, you recommended a policy or a law, you advocated for it, you implemented it, and there you have it. (laughs) And I, I still believe policy is really important. You want to get to scale, you still need government. But that process is too slow and too far from the people it affects. Yeah. Right? It by the time you get a law passed, even if you can, you may be five years from the research you did. And we're in a society that is constantly changing. I have overnight. In fact, I want same-day delivery from <laughs> <Yeah>. Amazon. <laughs> same-day policy, exactly. Yeah. So we're sort of flipping that on its head. And we're saying, let's start with the implementation. And above all, let's start with the people who are going to be affected. So if you were talking about food stamps or you were talking about the earned income tax credit or paid leave uh, or any number of environmental policies, policies or other policies, let's start with the people and ask them what they need. Ah, not the problem, per not se, the problem, but the people. Ex- exactly. Who- what they think the problem is, which is often not mm-hmm. what you think it might be. Paid leave is a good example where we think people need time off. They do, but they also need transport, right, <laughs> you know, to get to the daycare, you know, or, or they're, they're things that we, we who are sitting in our think tanks or our universities don't see. So that's the first pillar of the new practice is start with the people. Yeah, and it really gets down to beneficiary feedback. Yes, Which we've exactly. never really done. Exactly. I have worked in many nonprofit organizations, and we want to tackle a problem. Um, we'll talk to the staff. We'll speak to the board. We'll talk to the donors. We'll bring in an expert. Yes. But we'll never speak to the yes. people we serve. <laughs> and the people who are closest to the problem are the ones who are closest to the answer. Exactly right. The second pillar uh, – is scout and experiment. Um, And this has to do more with looking for solutions than creating them. Explain that. (laughs) Yes. So this is, again, uh, the the perspective of someone who sits in a Washington think tank. Mm -hmm. And think tanks were invented 100 years ago, and they were a way of improving the quality of government. I mean, I'm all for the idea that, that instead of just patronage, you should have people thinking about what good policies are. But we tend to... Uh, reinvent things or invent new things rather than going out to communities across the country and seeing what works. And this is connected to human-centered design because you've got to be where the people are. And you then have to say, well, what is working already? And often I think we can solve problems by finding the things that are working and bringing them together. Ultimately, you still need government to get to big scale. But I'll give you an example. Homelessness. Yeah. Right? So Built for Zero is this wonderful organization that – that sort of brings wraparound services to homelessness. And they bring everybody together in a community. They're part and they, of community solutions. They right? are part and of community Rosemary solutions. Haggerty. Exactly. Right. And they that's really hands-on, human-centered stuff. They are figuring out what each homeless person needs. How do they provide uh, those solutions? It's not – there's no silver bullet there. There's no tech mm. app that makes everything wonderful. Mm-hmm. But it works. And if you find that something that works like that, then start thinking about how do you spread it? You may well have to adapt it because different communities are different. But that's a very different experimental scouting approach than, again, writing a paper, issuing a report, and passing a law. And as I recall that conversation I had with her, too, and getting back to point number one, they have the names of the people yes. who are homeless. Yes. They're just not a demographic. <laughs> exactly. They're exactly. Denver and Anne Marie. That's right. Know? But they have really delivered results, right? Yeah. They have reduced homelessness to zero in They've some been, communities. Yeah, fantastic. The third is uh, data enabled. Now, what are the shortcomings of how we use data in the public sector now, and what does this new approach uh, do instead? 
Well, I really do think that in future, people like me who grow up wanting to make the world a better place in various areas, we will be steering them toward data science as much as public policy mm. school or law school or public health or anything oh, else. So right. um, and that's because you, you put your finger on it. It's feedback loops. right? So if you think about how a product is created, certainly a software product, but frankly, any product, you create a prototype, you sell it to cu- or you give it to customers, beta testing, and then you see what works and what doesn't. And then you constantly improve it. We we don't do that in the public sphere. We pass a law or we implement it. And then we discover even some of our very best uh, laws, uh, something like paid leave in the states that have it, only 30 percent of people take it up hmm. because it's not delivered right or because often very small details mean that the people it's intended to reach, it doesn't reach. So data is that critical feedback loop of how many people are using this. Then you find out why they're not. Then you tweak it. Then you see, you know, you, you measure success and then you're able to constantly improve. You know, one of my favorite lines, and I've used it before, but I think it comes from Silicon Valley, and that is if you design a product and then you test it and people don't laugh at you, you've waited too long. (laughs) (laughs) I like that very much. But that's exactly right. (laughs) (laughs) You've you've softened it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And the final critical element is to bring innovation to scale, and that is so much more difficult than I think most people appreciate. How can that best be achieved? Uh, There's no one way, but Mm -hmm. it is so hard, and we have to do that. I mean, I am very supportive of social enterprise and people who are trying to blend market forces uh, with with public purpose to try to to reach new solutions. Uh, But individual organizations, very hard to get to scale, very hard, right? This is not like the private sector where the more people you serve, the more money you make, so the more people you can serve. In the nonprofit sector, the more people you serve, the more it costs you and the more money you have to raise. (laughs) This is a, a, a very different business model. So that means that ultimately you really do often have to work hand in hand with government because only government can get to scale. But I think there are also ways, again, of if you think about homelessness, you think about community solutions built for zero. But then you may go to another community that has a different organization that's doing some of the same things but but is adapted to their community. Mm-hmm. And you go to you go to multiple communities, you can create a kind of flotilla yeah. of individual like organizations that. Mm-hmm. that are all sailing in the same direction, that all have the same goals. You need those common metrics because mm-hmm. you've got to have data to say, no, we are one collectively. Playbook one can, playbook. Mm-hmm. One playbook, one set of metrics. And frankly, you need to change the funding schemes because mm-hmm. what happens happens now is those organizations would like to sail together, but each of them needs to stoke their own engine room, and the, that means they need general operating support, and so they're much more likely to compete because they want to say to funders, fund me, don't, mm-hmm, don't fund mm-hmm. us. But that is a way of getting to scale, pulling together lots of individual organizations. It requires work to, to actually manage that coalition, to keep it sailing in the same direction. It requires different funding. But I think it's important for civil society not to say, well, there's just one solution and certainly not to just have it be government. We want ultimately – we actually want the private sector too. We want multiple organizations and we want to kind of have them sailing together. When someone tells me there's just one solution, I head for the hills. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Let me return to what I mentioned in the opening, and that was the Atlantic Magazine article, Why Women Still Can't Have It All, which led to a book titled Unfinished Business, Women, Men, Work, Family. What was going on in your life at the time when you wrote that article? Uh, well, I had, I had a son who was having a very bumpy adolescence. That son is now 22, and I actually look back and realize by the standards of many parents, it wasn't so unusual. But he was making bad choices. Yeah. And I was in Washington. I was in a dream job. I was hoping to stay and get get promoted. I had I was commuting back and forth from Princeton to Washington. And I just realized for the first time in my life, which had been very lucky until then, I had to make a choice. Mm-hmm. I really – there was no amount of, of leaning in, of ambition, of whatever else that was going to fix this, right? I There were no more hours in the day and frankly, I didn't know that if I went home, things would be better. My husband was doing his level best but I knew I had to try because – 
you know, when a child is three and they have a problem, you band-aid, you know, <laughs> you can help. When, when a child is 13, oh, you can't outsource that. Year. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I went home uh, and I wrote this article and it wasn't designed to say women can't have it all. It was designed to say we've got to make a lot of changes still because this idea that if you just try hard enough, you can make it. I'm as ambitious as anyone, and I've tried really hard. And if this happens in my life, my yeah. privileged, you know, affluent, high-level career life, just think about all the women who have had to make choices between their family and their career. Oh, yeah. And we're not supporting them. We're not letting them get back in. Mm. We're not harvesting their talent. So that was the point of the article was essentially a – Wow, I have just realized what I have been seeing all my life, and it's changing my own perspective. And many, many women, they still come up to me and talk about how it affected their lives, but many of them just said, I sat and cried Mm. when I read it. Yeah, I talked to my daughter last night, said you were going to be on. She said, I read that article. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, one of the things that I, I, I was really taken by was that when you went back to Princeton and told people it was because your tenure was going to expire, you had a two year absence. Cool. Yes. But when it was to, you know, watch for my son and work with my son, really? Yes. And they kind of looked down upon you almost. I mean, that, that must have really hurt. Well, it, it, I thought it was outrageous, actually. Yeah. And my book is about valuing care because what I realized was exactly as long as I made my departure about career, people thought she's a player. You know, yeah, I get this. Right. And the minute I said, well, no, I'm taking – you know, my our son is having some issues and I'm focused on it, which really should be in the scale of human values higher than your career ambition. You would think so. Right? On your deathbed, it probably will be. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I got, well, you're not a player. You know, they, I could see people reevaluating me. And that started me thinking about how it was that that as a a woman who wanted gender equality, we had privileged our father's work, the work that brings in income, and downgraded our mother's work, the work of of investing in others, right? I wouldn't be here but for my mother's work. My family is my foundation. And so uh, a large part of my work since then has – and New America's work has been to elevate the value of care, to say – whether it's a woman or a man, whoever's caring and whoever is being cared for, children, parents, as I get older, I think about that too, yeah. uh, the, you know, the disabled, uh, family members, that work is as important to our society as the work that produces income, and we need to support it and value it as, as people. Yeah. And to your point, it may be even more valuable. Absolutely. I mean, it's a social cohesion. It keeps us together. If we don't have that unit working, Absolutely. it can be, pretty, it can be pretty, uh, pretty bad. You know, in your book, you also say that the next phase of the women's movement is the men's movement. Yeah, I do. Now, tell us what you mean about that. <laughs> I should listen. <laughs> yes. Um, well, part of it is simply logical. You can't change the roles of one gender and not change the roles of the other. You're just not going to get to equality that way. So if you have a stylized world, which was never true because it was only true of pretty much fairly privileged white people that women stayed home and men worked, lots of working uh, women, women of color who always had to work. But still, if you change the roles of women so that they're now in the workforce – then to get to equality, you've got to change the roles of men so they're equally at home. And so when I say the next phase is a men's movement, we need to change what men do and what we value in men. And this Mm. is just as important, what women value in men, what men see in each other, to allow for men to be as much caregivers as they are breadwinners. Because we've done that for women. Women, one of the reasons we want it all is we've become breadwinners, but we don't want to give up. The, the value of care, the you know being needed by our children, the the satisfactions of that part of our lives. It's hard, but it's that is, and I actually think a lot of men want that too. Yes, men have written to me to say I would love to go home and be there for my kids' baseball games, to be able to coach, to be able to be fully invested as a father or as a son, taking care of my own parents, and yet I am not only given no space to do that. But when I do, my masculinity is in question. So the men's movement has to be for women and men to say, you know, a man who says I'm going home because I'm taking care of my kids is not only uh, a good feminist, he's he's a good man, but he's a man that we value and find attractive and think – I'd rather have that man than the man, you know, who only wants to shoot to the top of the career ladder. Yeah. 
And I, I will say men can be pretty tough on each other oh, when a guy does that. I yes. mean, women may have something about the value, but with men, you have to have a thick skin if Absolutely. you're going to do that because you're going to get teased. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Absolutely. If you're looking at men on a golf course with each other, it's yes. not pretty. No, it is not. <laughs> it's I, fun, but it's not pretty. <laughs> and I tell other women that, you know, my husband, I think is he's he is able to – play the role he plays in our family because he's really strong and secure. Right. So that, in fact, it's the most secure men. A lot of guys who've been in the military who mm. have very, you know, no issues about their masculinity are often, particularly if they're married to a woman who also deploys, they have no problem being the primary caregiver. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's, again, because they have the strength and security to withstand the ribbing of others. But women used to have to do that too, right? They, the early women were called all sorts of names that I won't repeat I on air. I, yeah, right, right. Thank you for that, by the way. You know what I mean? <laughs> Your husband's also a good cook. He's a great cook. He's a great cook. <laughs> so let me ask you this. I, I know that if you want men to sort of assume a equitable amount of the responsibility and accountability, women might have to give up <laughs> being the lead dog, the lead parent in charge at home. Because if my wife were to ask me to do that and I was tasked to do something, I'm going to do it my way. And I will be the first to admit it may not be too pretty. <laughs> so uh, at least at first, you know, right, right. are women willing to do that, you think, to give up that uh, that responsibility? I think women have to examine our own sexism in the home as much as we've asked men to examine sexism in the office. And I often have conversations with women where uh, a woman will start by saying, you know, I'm doing 75 percent of the work. He's only doing 25. And I'll say, so let him plan a birthday party. Oh. Right. Like, let him take it over completely. And the response is always, oh, my God, I couldn't do that. Oh, yeah. Well, why not? Well, because they just eat pizza. Yeah. Well, OK. In the first a birthday party. <laughs> right. <laughs> so my first point is that the, the expression to run a tight ship comes from the Navy, mm. that men actually <laughs> managed for you know centuries to do the kind of housekeeping they need to do when they're in all-male uh, communities. And the military is a good example. You know, you had to sew a button. You had to shine your shoes. You had to cook. So let's not think they can't do it. They're just going to do it differently than we do. Yeah. That's- and mm-hmm. But I do that in the office, right? I do things differently in the office. And when a man says that's not right, I say, how come? You know, why am I not equal in how I want to do this? So mostly I think, yes, men may do it differently. I always say that my husband thought it was more important for the boys to watch Marx Brothers movies all weekend than to do whatever chores I had in mind for them. Now that they're 20 and 22, they remember the Marx Brothers movies. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, who says that just because women have always done it this way, that's That's the right right. way? So the lawn didn't get cut (laughs) when he was 17. He's got a career in Hollywood. (laughs) And they're great poker players. (laughs) Uh, Man-Marie, what policies would make the biggest difference uh, for families in this country if they could be enacted? So there are two that would be game changers. One really would be paid family leave. So not just maternity, paternity, not even just childcare, paid family leave Mm. so that people really had a reservoir of funded time to do what they need to do uh, for uh, their family members. And without that, Lots of people end up leaving the workforce or going part-time. You just never know when somebody who's close to you is going to have a problem. So paid family leave would be a huge difference. And the other one, and we need elder care too, but the the starting point would be universal high-quality child care. And ironically or tragically, Richard Nixon almost signed Mm. a bill for universal child care in 1971, passed both houses of Congress with overwhelming bipartisan support. So we have actually been there as a country. Just imagine if everyone knew, like the French have, like so many Europeans Mm -hmm. have, when you have a child, after a certain period of time, that child is going to be taken care of with the best research on child development, early education, and you're going to be able to adapt your work life with that schedule. Some people may decide, no, I want to be home a couple days. But that would be transformative. And frankly, it would be transformative for the quality of the the care and education we give our children, which is essential to our future as a nation. And in closing that inequality. Absolutely. I can't think of anything that would make a bigger difference than that. 
Let me close with this, Anne-Marie, and it's about the upcoming presidential election. It's <laughs> not about what candidate you prefer or who you think is going to win. Rather, is there anything you would advise listeners to look for, to keep attuned to, um, maybe an issue, um, something that might be telling as to where this country is heading and what that outcome might be? Yes. I think the first thing I would urge people to do is to look beyond 2024, to look beyond the endless four-year cycle. I would ask people to start by looking at 2026. America will be 250 years old. Mm -hmm. I came of age during the bicentennial when we were 200. The country has been transformed between 1976 and 2026. And I would say to voters, imagine what you want our country to be when we look back at 250. Imagine what you want for education, for the way we work, for the way we care for each other, for what our politics look like, for how we interact online. Think about what you want and imagine looking back in 2026 and then look at what candidate is most likely to get us to that picture. So mm-hmm. drop your whether your partisan politics as much as you can. Drop the kind of crisis of the day and think about where's this country going and who's going to get us there? Because I think our future is very bright, but I think we're in a very dark moment. I, I, I myself think about 2026 and I want to celebrate – a wonderful country that is able to renew itself at regular intervals. That is so interesting. You know, when you want to change your life, they always tell you to start visioning. Yes. And you're asking this, <laughs> the people of this country to start visioning exactly. of where exactly. you want to go and then work backwards exactly. on how we're going to get there. Well, Dr. Anne-Marie Slaughter, the CEO of New America, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. For people to learn more about New America as well as your other work or to give a financial contribution to support that work, um, What's the best places for them to go? Well, I first of all, we welcome you all. Join us on a, on a journey of renewal. Uh, so our website, newamerica.org, has a lovely donate button, and we encourage you to donate. Uh, but we equally encourage you to find out about our work. I need ambassadors as much as financial supporters. I want people who, who share our vision, who tell others ab- about a sort of much stronger and better sense of where the country can go. Uh, and so to do that, familiarize yourself with our work, sign up for our newsletters, and yes, by all means, give us a contribution. Well, I spent hours on your website, and (laughs) it is unbelievably fascinating with the things you talk about. Thanks, Anne-Marie. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I so enjoyed the conversation. I'll be back with more of the Business of Giving right after this. Well, my husband is a retired sergeant from the Air Force. Well, he was in the Army for 14 years and an MP. 23 million veterans. They're heroes who need our help. Well, I'm here because my daughter has had her third surgery for cancer. We've had some difficulties, so we're here quite some time. We're going on to three weeks. When our heroes' families need help, they we turned to Fisher House. We learned about the Fisher House through the doctor, and we were so grateful because who has three weeks to be able to come and stay at a hotel? Fisher House is a safe, free place to stay for families of wounded warriors and veterans receiving treatment at VA and military medical centers. Fisher House is not only a home away from home, it was like family away from family. Thank you, Fisher House. Thank you, Fisher House. Helping military and veterans' families. Fisher House at fisherhouse.org. Sometimes having family close by is a hero's best medicine. Before you give to charity, Go to CharityNavigator.org. Charity Navigator provides free ratings of thousands of America's largest charities, helping you get the most out of your charitable dollar. CharityNavigator.org, your guide to intelligent giving. Do you remember your first job? Year Up is empowering low-income young adults with the skills and experience to get their first job. 85% of alumni are employed or in school within four months of graduation. Support opportunity for all. Visit YearUp.org. Follow the Business of Giving on Twitter at BizOfGive and at Facebook.com slash Business of Giving. And now, back to the Business of Giving with your host, Denver Frederick, on AM 970, The Answer. The world has been walloped with more than its fair share of natural disasters in recent years, many made worse due to climate change. And when you watch on TV the accounts of the devastation, the loss of life, One very important point is often neglected, and that is the substandard housing these people were living in. 
housing which frequently has collapsed upon them and their loved ones. This is an urgent issue, a global epidemic that merits far more attention, and we're going to give it some tonight with one of the preeminent leaders in the field. She is Dr. Elizabeth Hausler, the founder and CEO of Build Change. Good evening, Elizabeth, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Good evening, Denver. Nice to be here. Before we launch into our conversation, tell us the mission of Build Change. Build Change's mission is to save lives in earthquakes and windstorms by working with people in emerging nations to build houses and schools that don't collapse in them. A pivotal moment um, for you was the earthquake in Gujarat, India, in 2001. Tell us what you had been doing when this occurred and then how events unfolded which led to the founding of Build Change. Yeah, I was in grad school at UC Berkeley studying civil engineering at the time, and that earthquake killed about 20,000 people. Most people died because their unreinforced masonry house collapsed on them. So I thought, this is a man-made problem, so there must be a, a woman-made, in this case, solution. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, I had grown up in a small town outside of Chicago. Uh, my dad, for 50 years, worked as a bricklayer. He owned a small business in the construction industry. So my sister and I worked as bricklayers for our summer jobs in high school and college. So I had construction skills. I had engineering skills. And I thought, there must be something that I can do to help. Yeah, and when you saw that, it really became a social justice issue for you, didn't it? Absolutely, yes. Social justice, I believe fundamentally that everyone has a right to a safe home, regardless of any other factor, income, gender, um, any other issue. Uh, Elizabeth, how much of the housing in the world would be considered substandard? Uh, The World Bank estimates that 3 billion people will be living in substandard housing by 2030. Mm -hmm. So it's a third of the population living in substandard housing. Tell us a little bit more about the founding story. You went over to India, Mm -hmm. uh, and then where did you go from there? Well, I went to India, and India was a great place to learn Mm -hmm. how to approach post-disaster housing reconstruction and how not to. So India had um, very successfully rolled out a homeowner-driven reconstruction program after the earthquake in Gujarat, where the homeowners were given the choice of rebuilding themselves uh, with a cash grant in installments or working with a partner NGO. And those homeowners who decided to rebuild themselves were much more satisfied with the outcome because they could choose for themselves the building materials, the architecture, and as long as they followed the standards, they got the cash installments to help them with the process. As opposed to some homeowners that received a house given to them from an NGO, mm-hmm. um, oftentimes that, that NGO made the wrong decision about where the toilet should be located, where the front door should be located. And those homeowners were a lot less satisfied. So it was very clear to me that the homeowners really need to drive the process. They need to make decisions about materials and architecture. Yeah, it makes all the difference when you have mm-hmm. ownership. In. And I, I, I bet that's part of uh, why they want their house to be that much safer because they've actually had a hand in building the house. Yeah, the more the homeowners are bought into the process and they uh, they agree with the architecture or the architecture meets their family's needs, the more interested they are in investing more and in making it safe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you, here you are in graduate school. You see this earthquake. You go over there and <laughs> you have uh, an idea and some skill, lots of passion and determination. <laughs> but how in the world the little old you <laughs> get this incredible organization started? Uh, the, well, in, in the early days, it's thanks so much to Echoing Green. Mm-hmm. So um, an early stage uh, funder of social entrepreneurship organizations and social justice organizations based here in New York. Uh, Cheryl Dorsey's been on the show a couple times. Uh, she's amazing. She is and amazing. She and her team took a chance on me mm-hmm. and, you know, just me at that point. <laughs> That's what it is. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was really just an idea. So I'll, I'll be eternally grateful to Cheryl for that. Um, because that was sort of the boost of confidence that I needed to start the organization. Um, And then the tsunami happened Mm -hmm. in the Indian Ocean. Um, I'd started the organization a few months before. We were trying to figure out where should we start our first program. We were going to work in Iran and in India, but then the tsunami happened, and it just made so much more sense to go work in Indonesia, given the high high likelihood of more earthquakes there. Absolutely. And then uh, you hooked up with the Mercy Corps. Yes. And Mercy Corps, again, eternally grateful for their assistance as well. They had started to work on uh, debris clearing and other emergency issues after the tsunami. And about three months after um, the event happened, people started to say, "Okay, we we're ready for housing. We need housing. But Mercy Corps didn't have that. Um, Mercy Corps reached out to partners like Build Change Mm -hmm. to implement um, a homeowner driven housing program. Mm hmm. My brother builds houses, and I, on the other hand, is the least handy person in the entire world. So this question is really directed for people uh, like me. 
What are the most important practices to building a safe home that you don't find in substandard housing? Ah, so we have the build change three C's, uh-huh. which are trying, we're basically trying to make it simple. Mm-hmm. So it is really simple how you build a disaster resilient home. So the first C is configuration. So build a simple square, symmetric house with not huge openings, no heavy mass above your head, Uh right? Um, So follow very simple configuration rules. That's the first C. The second C is connections. Everything has to be connected together, especially for a hurricane. The roof has to be tied down to the walls. For an earthquake, all of the walls have to be connected together. So we have to emphasize connections, connections of all those structural elements. Mm -hmm. And the third C is construction quality. So good quality building materials, good quality workmanship, good quality bricklaying, everything that goes into quality of construction. So the three Cs, configuration, connections, and construction quality. If you get those right, you're in pretty good shape. Well, there you go. You know, I didn't think I was going to be able to follow that answer, but I did. (laughs) (laughs) How much more expensive is it to build uh, an earthquake or uh, disaster-resistant house compared to one that is not? It's a, it depends on the starting point. So mm-hmm. the, these numbers range between 5%, 20 25%, depending on where you're starting. Yeah. You know, in the countries where you operate, are there building codes? And if there are, are those codes ever enforced? Generally, where we operate, there are building codes. But what we find is, yes, you're right, there's a lack of building code enforcement. And there's also a lack of simplification and access. So uh, we often find there is a very good, detailed, uh, complex building code for, say, a multi-story commercial building or a hospital. But bringing that down to a house is a difficult thing. So we create very simple resources intended to bridge between a complex building code and the reality of what it takes to build a safe house on the ground. So you fill the gap. We do. Between zip and, uh, you know, a 50-story building. Exactly. Yeah, that's interesting. How have you found it navigating the ecosystems in these places? Because I would imagine there's tons of ministries and regulations. I mean, how do you get in there and kind of finesse your way through to, to get the work done that you get done? Well, it is about recognizing what those gaps are and working to fill them. Um, We often find that there are, especially if we're working in a rural area, there are no engineers, um, no government engineers working in that area. So if we can supplement that that team or that capacity by hiring some local professionals and deploying them to do construction supervision and quality control, that can help the situation. It could be that the government just doesn't have the budget to get building inspectors out to the field, especially in remote rural areas. We're also improving our use of technology so that we can remote uh, check construction quality. So we're we're about filling those gaps. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it's about relationship building. Mm-hmm. So we hire local professionals and they build relationships with local government. Um, and we work together to uh, build better. And do you train these local professionals? And if you do, what's the most effective way to train someone? Yes, we train local professionals if they need it. Engineers, uh, technical high school students, building materials producers, builders themselves. Um, And the most effective way of doing that is in a hands-on environment. So if we go in and sort of give a lecture on how to lay bricks, that is not very effective. (laughs) (laughs) You You have to lay bricks. You have to build the building. You have to get your hands dirty. And so our training programs are very hands-on. They're also very competency-based. So if a builder comes in and and he or she already has a skill, they can just demonstrate it Mm -hmm. and get certified. They don't have to waste their time going through a training course. And then we can focus on the skills that are still being developed. Yeah, yeah. So it's really on-the-job training. Yes. On-the-job training is the ideal way of training. That's how I learned how to lay bricks. Yes, you did at about six. (laughs) (laughs) Not quite, but close. At age six, I was still picking up the broken bricks, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) You know, uh, in the countries where you have operated, and you can tell us where you have operated, Mm -hmm. do you find it to be very distinct and unique to each one of those countries, or are the problems you encounter pretty much similar no matter where you go? Yes. So we currently operate in Indonesia, the Philippines, Nepal, Colombia, Guatemala, little work in Mexico, um, Haiti, Dominica, St. Martin, And we've done a little bit of work in five Pacific islands, uh, Tonga, Vanuatu, Samoa, Solomon Islands, and Cook Islands. Mm -hmm. So we are dominantly in Asia and Latin America, in the Caribbean and the Pacific islands. And 
we find a lot of similarities across every place that we work. Those construction, those design and construction rules, the three C's that I mentioned before, configuration, connections, and construction quality, they can explain every building success and every building failure around the world. We also find the challenges homeowners face and what motivates a homeowner to build safely are pretty much the same no matter where we work. Homeowners want their families to be safe. They want a functional kitchen, a good toilet. They want the ability to grow and expand. And so we see these motivations regardless of the culture and the location where we're working. And you don't simply uh, focus on building new houses for after a disaster, but you're also preparing those existing structures uh, in the case of one. Tell us about retrofitting. Yes, retrofitting is a very useful tool for strengthening and upgrading existing housing. So there's a huge housing gap across the world, and we're not going to fill it by building new buildings alone. So there's an opportunity to upgrade and strengthen existing buildings in a way that's affordable and safe, and oftentimes enables a homeowner to expand, maybe add a second story. Yeah. Give me an example of what you would do to strengthen an existing structure. Yes. So we are often dealing with unreinforced masonry. So it's common throughout the developing world. And so we have to work with people because to build with this technology because that is what they prefer and that's what's locally available. So unreinforced masonry um, can f- perform very poorly in an earthquake. But what we need, what we can do is tie all the walls together by putting a ring beam on top of the walls. Mm. So it's just a reinforced concrete beam around the top of the walls that ties the walls together. So this simple step can make a big difference in the safety of these buildings. We can also do things like plaster the walls on both sides, which also improves the strength. So these simple things, a ring beam and and plaster, can go a long way in improving the safety. Have you been able to measure the impact of the work that you've done? Well, we've had a few of our neighborhoods tested by subsequent earthquakes and hurricanes, so yes. And um, our buildings performed well. That's yes. great. <laughs> that's, that's, that is the ultimate test. Yes. You know, you touched on this a moment ago, um, and that is the role of technology. Mm. Speak a little bit more about that and how your work has changed since you first started and how you use technology now to help it along. Yes, that's a great question. Um, we want to reach scale, so reach as many homeowners, thousands and thousands of thousands of homeowners with solutions for safe housing. And so in order to do that, we need to reduce the time it takes to assess a house, design a house, um, do quality control in the house. So so we've been using technology since day one to facilitate this process. But in the early days, it was um, AutoCAD 2D, which is a drafting software, a handheld GPS unit, mm-hmm. a digital camera, a spreadsheet, and a lot of paperwork and work in the office. And so more recently, the technology that is available, available to us now um, using AI, using Revit, using Dynamo scripts, using some tools and softwares that are available now, we can reduce the time it takes us to assess a building, to design a building, and to do quality control in the building by applying these technologies. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So you have the people, mm-hmm. you got the trained workers, mm-hmm. and you have the technology. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned a moment ago, the third stool, uh, the third leg to the stool is financing. So are there new financial products that have come online that are making it easier for homeowners to get the money to either strengthen their home or to build a new one? Right. So the financing is key, is a key component. If people don't have access to financing or their own wealth, then they are most likely not going to build a safe home. So this is a key of the three-legged stool, as you said, yeah. money, technology, and people. So, um, and there's, there's, two, there's two main uh, um, avenues for funding. There are subsidies and there are loans. Um, In many of our locations, uh, there are subsidies available for folks to rebuild or retrofit. This often happens after a disaster. In some cases in Colombia and Guatemala and other locations, subsidies are available for home improvement before the disaster. Mm -hmm. But there are some environments where subsidies are not available. So in the Philippines, for example, um, we have been experimenting with providing a loan, uh, housing finance to homeowners to improve their houses. And this has proven to be successful at a small scale. And I was skeptical. I, w- I, wasn't, I doubted whether or not people would actually go into debt to do a structural improvement. But it turns out if we bundle structural strengthening mm-hmm. with expansion, it's actually a very attractive product to a homeowner in Manila who recognizes that they live in an environment that's prone to earthquakes and typhoons. Do they get a break on their insurance? 
Hi, insurance. Uh, insurance. Oh, if, only, <laughs> if only we could get to the point where these houses are insurable. We have been um, advocating with the insurance industry to mm-hmm. help us to close this protection gap yeah. and to work together to improve the homes so that they are insurable so that the homeowners can have that additional protection. Mm-hmm. protection. But generally, most of the homeowners that we work with are outside the insurance market. They're outside the insurance market. Yep. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You also strive to educate the public on safe construction. You have information campaigns and things mm-hmm. of that nature. What, what, are, what are they like? Uh, radio, billboards, right, radio. Um, apps. <laughs> In the old days when, when um, you know, SMS became common, we used to text our builders reminding them to soak their bricks in water that morning and that sort of thing. So we're using every avenue we can to get the information out to the population about safe construction. We have um, mostly we rely on apps now. Um, to get that information out. Yeah. And mm-hmm. when you talk about soaking the bricks in water to strengthen them, that uh, also becomes a finance issue, too, because that builder can't turn that around as quickly as they otherwise might. So you have to sort of have that bridge to allow that individual to do that before it goes to market. Exactly. Yes. And with the right training and the right in- incentives and information, it can be done. You're a 501c3. So we are. what are your sources of revenue? Ah, good question. So oftentimes after a disaster, our sources of revenue are other larger NGOs. So American Red Cross, Mercy Corps, um, ca- uh, Catholic Relief Services, mm-hmm. uh, World Vision, organizations that are um, working in the post-disaster relief space who also want um, are interested in supporting people with uh, housing reconstruction or retrofitting. Uh, we have a few corporate partnerships. We, of course, have individual funders um, and funders from the social entrepreneurship space. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I've always was amazed at how well you have built partnerships. you got mm. a lot of partnerships. And it is funny with Mercy Corps and things of that sort. When an organization starts and they forge a partnership, it kind of becomes part of their ethos. Yes. And you have been able to find all different kinds of partnerships, as you say, in the finance space mm-hmm. and things of that. What makes a great partnership? Well, you, you, we have to have partnerships. I mean – Housing is a very complex issue, yeah. and there's not one organization that can solve the problem. So we need partnerships with NGOs, with finance institutions, with government, with private sector, all of them. But what makes a great partnership? I think one of the things that we've that has stood out is is when we're philosophically aligned, mm. when everyone wins, and when there are champions within both organizations that can make things happen. Talk about the corporate culture at Build Change. What do you believe is the most unique aspect of it, and why is it such a special place to work? Ah, yeah, it is a special place to work. <laughs> we we just had our 15-year anniversary, and I'm sure I wouldn't have stayed for 15 years if it wasn't a special place. I think we're all driven by impact. We're all driven by the need for safer housing around the world. And we see in homeowners' faces on a day-to-day basis how important this is to them, how scared or traumatized they might be after a disaster, and how important it is to um, work with them to build a safe house so that um, um, they can return to a normal life. Does the media ever come to you after one of these disasters? And I say that in the context that 90,000 people Mm -hmm. died in natural Mm -hmm. disasters last year. And I sort of said in the opening, you know, I see this on TV, but you know, we just know their bodies underneath the rubble. No mm-hmm. one ever talks about substandard housing, and I just wonder why that isn't more discussed on the networks. I mean, have you found that to be the case? Yes, I was going to ask you that question. <laughs> <laughs> it's my show. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I wonder about that because the media tends to focus on the immediate aftermath of the disaster, which is terrible, and yes. it's a it's a humanitarian disaster, and they should focus on that. Well, the unfortunate thing for us is that they there there's less attention in the media. Sort of three, three, even three months, six months, nine months, twelve months after after a disaster, when housing becomes, um, uh, uh, when housing is the critical issue being addressed, and unfortunately, a lot of the media ten- attention is negative. It focuses on people not delivering housing yeah. when there are success stories out there of successful um, delivery of housing programs and uh, positive results. Yeah, I think somebody on the show once called it the CNN moment. And when CNN leaves, then all of a sudden everything is forgotten. But that's when the real work begins. Right. But we just tend our attention span is so short. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. Let me close with this, Elizabeth. And that is this major new initiative you have just announced with the World Bank. What is it and what do you hope it's going to achieve? It's the Global Program for Resilient Housing, and it is intended to improve existing housing around the world, especially in emerging markets. And we hope it drives 
uh, capital toward the problem, as well as technical inputs, technology, and incentives for people to build safely. That's fantastic. Well, Dr. Elizabeth Hausler, the founder and CEO of Build Change, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. Tell us where people can learn more about this work and also about your 10 and 10 initiative. Ah, yes. So you can find out, you can visit our website at buildchange.org, follow us on Twitter at buildchange. And our 10 and 10 initiative is to enable 10 million people to live in safer housing in the next 10 years. Oh, that's great. And people can support that, can't they? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks, Elizabeth. It was a real pleasure to have you on the program. My pleasure as well. Thank you so much. And that is this week's show. Next week, my guest will be Kathleen Rogers, the president and CEO of the Earth Day Network. April 22nd of next year will mark the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And do return next Sunday evening for the business of giving. The preceding program is paid for by the friends and partners of the business of giving. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.